Welcome back, and thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm here with Terry Fakes this week for a New Testament book overview. And in fact, two New Testament books that we're going to bundle together this week, the books of First and Second Thessalonians. This is like a two-for-one sale. This is, and, it, and, and we were just talking about some recommendations earlier. This is one credit on Audible. You get this both of these books for one in this episode. And I tell you what, we don't usually do this. I was looking back through our list this week. We usually split up books like this. We've done uh, First and Second Timothy, for example, we did as two separate podcast episodes. And part of that is uh, when there's a lot of unique material um, to these books. But I actually think First and Second Thessalonians is for reasons that we'll talk about are kind of mutually informative. In fact, they're books that should be read together. And there are some other books in the New Testament like that. I think Second Peter and Jude are kind of like that. They have a similar template. Right. They're, it's helpful to read them together, even Colossians and Ephesians, although we've treated those separately. Those are good to read together because they have a similar flow of thought. And sometimes those two books can help you uh, interpret each book by reading them together. The pastoral situation in First and Second Thessalonians is one of these cases where it really does help to read them both. And so we're going to cover both of them together in the hopes that they shed light on both, both letters. So as yeah. we usually do, I want to start with a little bit of background on these letters. And something unique about First Thessalonians is that depending on how you date Paul's letters, some people think that First Thessalonians is the first letter of Paul's that we have. Do you have a thought on that? I think it is definitely one of the first, and here's why I think so, is uh, just to sketch this out. So in the book of Acts, between roughly chapter 15 and 18 is Paul's second journey. And in chapter 17, you get recorded there his visit to this city, Thessaloniki. And what happened to him there, the persecution that happened, and how that when and how the church got started. So Paul then goes on to Greece, what's now called Greece, and he ends up in Corinth, and he stays a long time in Corinth. Well, he left a couple of his compatriots, in, and they gave brought him a report when he was in Corinth from how are the Thessalonians doing? Are they being persecuted? What's happening there? You know, they ran Paul out of town. How's the church doing? So one thing you know is that while he was in Corinth, he has an interaction with a Roman official named Gallio. Here's the interesting thing. From extra-biblical sources, you know that Gallio got that position and in a, either June of AD 51 or June of AD 52. So probably June of AD 51. And so putting those little detective pieces together, these letters were probably written in 50 or 51 AD, which would make them, if not the earliest, certainly one of the earliest. Would you concur with that? Yeah, the only the only one that is of dispute is when the letter to the Galatians was written. Is Galatians right. written early? Or is it written late? Some people think that Galatians is written before the Jerusalem Council, which is in Acts chapter 15. Some people think it was written after that. So it could be the first. This could be the first. It's certainly early. And the events that Paul's referring to, the planting of the church in Thessalonica, is a very early part of his ministry. Now, the thing about Paul's background that is really fascinating is we don't know what he was doing for a long time between his conversion 
and the trouble he runs into in Jerusalem, then when he pops up in Antioch. So he's in the wilderness for some people think three years, some people think as long as 14 years. There's a huge chunk of time where we don't know what Paul was doing. There are some theories that maybe he was planting churches there, that maybe he had ventured into uh, Asia Minor at that point. Um, people think maybe he was in his hometown for a lot of that time. We really don't know. What we do know is when he goes on his missionary journeys, this is one of the first churches and especially one of the first Macedonian churches that he plants. And it is one of his most successful church plants because it doesn't always go well for Paul. You know that from reading the book of Acts. But this church really embraced the message. They really embraced Paul. He was only there for a couple of weeks, but he saw a lot of fruit. And that makes this a really unique letter. So we sometimes think of Philippians as being a letter of friendship because Paul has such a tight relationship with the church in Philippi. And then on the other hand, the churches in Galatia, he has a very adversarial relationship. Same thing with the Corinthian letters. You see a lot of strain on their relationship. First Thessalonians should be in the first category with the book of Philippians. This is a really heartfelt, friendly letter. I think as we're going to move through it here, it's maybe the most personal letter. This and Second Corinthians are two of the most personal glimpses that we get into Paul's life and the way that he pastored. I want to say a couple of things extra biblically about the history of this place that I think help situate the letter. So this is uh, this town. We call it Thessalonica in the Bible. Now it's town is spelled slightly differently. We call it Thessaloniki. So you could say it either way. But basically, this town was founded in the in the late fourth century BC, and it was intended to be a seaport that would serve all of Macedonia. Think Greece. Think just to the west of Israel on the Mediterranean Sea, but to the east of the Roman Empire. It was a, a very popular route. So this is on the Via Ignatia. So this is a very well-traveled military route. This is how you would cross from Rome to the Middle East, as we know it, the uh, area of Judea. Um, And it was popular among Romans to come to Thessalonica as kind of a uh, it's away from the empire, but close enough that you can still hear all the gossip and get the papers and things like that. In fact, Cicero, not actually that far before this time period, Cicero was exiled to Thessalonica. So it offers a huge strategic importance. And this is one of the things that Paul does is he goes to these big urban centers and then allows people to convert and go back to their hometowns in smaller areas around. And Thessalonica is one of these big strategic influential places. Another thing that's kind of interesting is there was a prophecy at some point that a person named Paulus was going to come to Thessalonica with good news. And of course, this is not something we read about in the Bible, but historically, I think this is kind of an interesting uh, tidbit that in the ancient world, this was a very pluralistic culture. And maybe that word is slightly anachronistic, but there was a huge mix of beliefs going on. And just like later in chapter 17 of Acts, where he gets to Athens and the people are listening for something new, Paul goes into these cities with the expectation that if he can present the gospel to these people, he will have people who listen because they 
it's not just that they're not sure of what they believe. It's that there are so many mixing faiths in this era of history that Paul wants to get his foot in the door and say, this is the one true faith. And whether or not that prophecy played into it or whether or not it was just the boldness of Paul going in and preaching the gospel, you see in the first chapter that the people were open to hearing what he had to say when he came in. So the book breaks down in some ways similarly to other letters in in the sense that you have a greeting, you have um, Paul talking about the church itself. The first half is a little bit more theological. The second half is a little bit more applicational. But in some ways, this is a unique letter because it deals much more with Paul's personal travels, his things that have been going on in his life, his experience with the church. And I think one of the reasons is Paul is only in Thessalonica for about four weeks before he's forced to leave. Now, Timothy stays for a little bit longer and then reports back to Paul that he's not here very long, but he preaches the gospel, people convert, he sees them change, and they become a resounding picture across all of Macedonia of what it looks like for a church to be planted and start thriving. That's pretty unique in Paul's ministry. You you just don't see this quite as often. And I think that's probably why at the beginning of this letter, he spends so much time talking personally about what's happened. There's some powerful things in the first chapter. Uh, And then I want to ask you a question about chapter two. But for example, chapter one, verse six, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. You received the word in much affliction, meaning persecution, but with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in the greater Greece. He says, not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia, that means they're spreading the word, they're evangelizing, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So he is really impressed by the genuineness of their conversion, of their commitment to Christ. And it's a very personal letter. But it seems to me, Cole, in chapter two, or the way we've broken it, uh, the editors have broken this up, but what we call chapter two sure seems to be a very pastoral part. It's not so much, uh, I mean, there is some theology there, but it's theology in the context of very pastoral tone that he takes with them. You really don't see anything else quite like this in Paul's letters. Again, Second Corinthians is very personal. Paul's very upset in Second Corinthians. Here, he's warm. He loves these people. Maybe the closest is Acts chapter 20, where Luke relays his speech to the Ephesian elders. But you get a lot of features here of what it must have been like to be around Paul. And of course, we think about him as a bold and sometimes aggressive, um, and I think probably in some ways abrasive personality. But here he shows that he was a warm pastor. He was tender in the right Mm -hmm. ways, and he was loving. And so what you see in this section is he talks about why they came and preached the gospel. And I I think, I've thought this for a really long time, that if you are thinking about doing ministry, professional, non-professional, vocational, non, if you're thinking about doing ministry of any kind, this is a passage you should spend a lot of time praying and thinking through. So he says, we didn't come um, because it was easy. So we had already been treated shamefully and uh, they had already been through some very difficult circumstances on their missionary journey. Um, And our our appeal doesn't spring from error and purity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, 
so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. And this is actually the passage where we got our name, so we speak. There are a couple of instances in Paul's letters where he says this, but this one is really the source of why we are called so we speak. Because what Paul's saying here is the life of a Christian is to be approved by God. So think about salvation, regeneration, your right standing with God has been, um, you've been reunited with him and he's given you a mission. So you've been approved by him. You've been commissioned and trusted with the gospel. So we speak. We don't speak to please men. We seek to please God. And Paul goes on because we didn't come with words of flattery. God is witness. We didn't seek glory from people, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves because you've become very dear to us. Here's an insight into Paul's ministry that I think you, you can't miss. He was banking on the fact that his life, that if people saw the way that he lived, that they spent time with him here a couple of weeks, but in Corinth and in Ephesus years at a time, that they would be changed and attracted and that his life would actually adorn the message of the gospel through his character, through his commitment, through his passion. And this is where sometimes we get kind of wonky in today's church is we either put too much or too little emphasis on our actions. So you have um, people who have empty words and their actions don't back it up. That can really tarnish the gospel. You have people right. who think that it just, if you just live a certain way, people will all of a sudden, you know, spontaneously convert. It really takes both. But we talked about this in, a, in an episode a few weeks ago. I don't think it's unfair to say, especially for people who are examples, for people who are in ministry, your actions really matter. That's not um, being unfair to say that. It's not putting too much pressure on ourselves. Um your actions really matter, and your actions can either adorn the gospel or tarnish. And Paul is basically saying to them, you've seen how I live. You can tell that if you look at the way I live, what I believe must be true. And that's really the goal. He says, you know, we were willing to share not just the gospel, but our own selves. We were really willing to get our lives enmeshed with each other in the time that I was there. That's a huge takeaway and something sometimes you don't think about for Paul. He wasn't a lone wolf. He wasn't uh, totally itinerant. He was willing to settle down and invest his life with a group of people as part of his mission work. And he has such a great balance, Cole. I mean, on the one hand, he talks about how gentle, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, and you can see his affection for them. But then in verse 11, in a very complimentary way, he says, you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted you and encouraged you and charged you to live in a manner worthy of God. And so you see this beautiful balance of he cares for them like a nursing mother and like a father who desperately wants his children to grow up in a good way. And I think that's a great model for us. It's not uh, enabling people by just uh affection that's not tempered by truth, nor is it a harshness that he's not afraid to jump in and work hard and care for them. I just think this chapter is the perfect balance for pastors, is to speak the truth in love. Mm -hmm. and, and Paul is, is, he's sad, you see in verse 17, about being taken away from them because uh, being with them, doing life together with them, 
uh, had been such a rich time. He says that you heard from us, but you didn't accept it as the word of men. This is in verse 13, but really what it was, the word of God, which is at work in Mm -hmm. you. So I just love this opening because it gives a picture of what it must have been like when Paul comes to town. Now, of course, the things that he doesn't mention here are that riots usually happen and he gets persecuted and stoned and left for dead. And he actually gets kicked out of Thessalonica because the authorities are so upset at what's happening. But in the midst of all that, he has these really rich uh, relationships and this tenderness, pastoral tenderness that he offers. Um, When he leaves Thessalonica, he goes to Athens and says in Acts 17, he's waiting there for Timothy to rejoin him. And Timothy, it says in chapter three here, comes and he brings a good report of what's going on. The work that they started there is continuing. And in fact, this letter is probably a response to Timothy's report that he's brought back from the church. And so Paul wants to address a few things. So the first thing he does is he talks about holiness in chapter four. What is it for, you know, a life pleasing to God? Then I've talked about this verse a lot on the podcast, but in in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, this is the will of God your sanctification. It doesn't get any more basic than that. Okay. If you're wondering what God's will for your life is, start here. (laughs) This is his will for you, your sanctification, that you would be made holy, that you would look more like Christ. Here he says specifically that you'd you'd abstain from sexual immorality, that you would know how to control your body in holiness and honor, not in passions and lusts like the Gentiles. Um, So there's an emphasis on holiness here. But there's actually another pastoral concern. This must have been something that Timothy brought back and said, you know, they're really struggling with this. That takes most of of the end of chapter four through the middle of chapter five. This is one of the places that Paul talks about end times, probably the place where he spends the most time talking about it. But what was the question that they had? A good point. And it's important to keep in mind because we tend to want to pull this what's called eschatology, his talk about the end times, pull it out and treat it like a doctrine. And it is doctrine, but it's written in answer to specific concerns in a very pastoral setting. Their concern at the end of chapter four appears to be what happens to those of us who have passed away before Christ came back? Did they miss out? In other words, they, because of his short time there, he didn't have Obviously, he's going to teach certain doctrines before he teaches others, and it doesn't sound like he had time to get to, here's how everything's going to play out in the end times. And so they were just concerned simply that if someone died, does that mean they wouldn't get to go to heaven because they're, they weren't here when Jesus came back? And so the tail end of chapter four is, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep, which was a euphemism in those days for those who have died and passed on. And this is where you get that famous passage for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry and the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet and the dead in Christ, meaning Christians who have died will rise first. Then we who are alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And we will always be with him. So it's very pastorally reassuring. He's, I would say this, when we read it as a doctrine, we'd love to have more details. But if you read it as a pastor, this is what they need to hear. So I think Paul is not telling us everything about the end times, but I think he's answering a specific pastoral situation is don't worry about those who have died because we will all be with Christ. Yeah, so this is, this is not a must-be-present-to-win contest. The right. people really were expecting that you had to make it 
to the second coming in order to uh, be with Christ in heaven. And like you said, this is just a great pastoral application. There's evidence here and in Second Thessalonians that he talked about this briefly, and they just had a lot of questions. And so he is addressing some of those. Now, I think the point you made about context is so helpful because a lot of times we take chapter five out of context. And especially um, in this in this book, it should be read in the context of 413 all the way down through 511, kind of as one paragraph or one long right. Um, part of this letter. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Okay, this set off a lot of um, speculation, even up through today. I think this thief in the night, there's, of course, that movie, a Thief in the Night, from probably the 1980s that we were forced to watch in school about the rapture. Um, there's a lot of speculation about what this means, and I think it's probably best interpreted in this context. But you get some really famous phrases here. So um, the day of the Lord, which I want to come back to that in a moment. I think the day of the Lord here should be interpreted the way the day of the Lord is interpreted everywhere else in the Bible. We'll, right. we'll come like a thief in the night. People, um, you know, labor pains on a pregnant woman. Um, then he says, we are children of the light, children of the day. We need to keep awake. Uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on here. This is a big passage for the rapture, right? This is probably the strongest single passage evidence for the rapture in the New Testament. What do you make of this? Well, I like the way you've teed this up, Cole. And uh, before we talk about the rapture, let me make one comment on, on what you were talking about is uh, the Lord, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night is a continuation and an emphasis of what Jesus himself taught through so many parables talking about, um, you know, the bridesmaids need to keep their lamps trimmed and because you don't know when the groom will come, etc. So he's being very consistent with what Jesus had to say about the last days. I agree with you about the day of the Lord. There's absolutely no justification in my view to take that any way other than the way it's done in the rest of the Bible, and that is the coming for judgment of God. Right. I think you do a great job if you listen to your Revelation series or uh, you talk through um, what we call the Olivet Discourse in Matthew before where you've given multiple positions on how to interpret these. And I think that's really helpful. We're certainly not going to solve these problems in this podcast. Um, so maybe give us kind of the, um, maybe the most raptury position and the least raptury position on how people <laughs> read this. That's a, that's a good point because the word rapture, as you know, comes from this passage in chapter four, where it says, uh, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So don't worry about Christians who've died. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up. And in Latin, so this is written in Greek originally, then it's translated to Latin. And for about a thousand years, the church read the Bible in Latin. And the word in Latin is basically rapture. It is to be caught up. That's where the, the birds raptors get their name is they seize their prey with their claws. They catch them up. And so this is the, this is where the word that we get rapture comes from. And that is the idea of people being caught up in the air with Christ. The big question, and now keep in mind, Paul's not writing to answer this question. We 
would love for him to tell us the answer to this question, but he's writing to assure them that the dead in Christ will rise. The question is, is this rapture, seizing, being caught up in the air, the believers with Christ, is that a separate event from the final judgment? Say in Revelation chapter 20, the day of the Lord, where I have all the dead will be raised up and everyone will be judged and some will go on to eternal reward and some will go on to eternal separation from God. Are those two separate events? That is the simplest way that I can explain the difference of opinion on the rapture. Some would say this event is Christians leaving the world before the whole world is judged. Those who say, no, there's not, it's not that you don't believe in a rapture. People just don't believe it's different from the day of the Lord, that those are one event, that when the Christians are caught up with Christ, that inaugurates the final judgment. So the question is, is the rapture separate from final judgment or are those two the same event? That's probably the simplest way to divide it. Maybe that's too simplistic, but what do you think? Well, there are certainly nuances to those positions, but I think that's exactly right. Is the is the second coming, as in the final second coming, the judgment throne of God, fast forwarding all the way to Revelation chapter 20, what we're talking about here? Or is there an event before this, usually called the rapture, in which some Christians are taken up, they avoid the tribulation, that kind of thing. So there's different schemes for understanding this. The only other comment I would make here is when you look at what Jesus is saying in Matthew 24, for example, the day of the Lord is a temporal judgment day there. And certainly some people interpret that as the final uh, judgment, but I think it's very difficult to read that without a reference to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So you have a moment in history of judgment, and then you obviously have the final cosmic judgment and different positions on this. And we we obviously have different positions of people who are listening to this. Um, there's a lot of good material out there on this that we can't cover here, but there's a lot of ways to, to construe this. And I think the most important thing is to remember what Paul's addressing directly in this text and you know what we think that most of Scripture is teaching when it comes to judgment, the day of the Lord, and the return of Christ for his people. And you get that framework, then we can argue about the different schemes and things, but I think we're probably all on the same page with those points. I, I agree. And here's a great uh, principle is the further away you get from the main point of a passage, the less dogmatic you should be. I'm not saying, I mean, obviously this passage is reassuring them 100%, absolutely dogmatically, that Christians who die before Christ comes are in no means left out. So that's absolutely dogmatic. Now, the further away you get that Christ will come and we will be caught up in the air with him, and that's going to be some kind of an event. Well, I would also say that is true. But the further away you get from the main point of the passage, the less dogmatic you should be about mm -hmm. your understanding of that path. Not that it couldn't also be true. It's just not the point of the passage. So we should treat it with a little humility. It's a great principle. The last thing I want to point out in First uh, Thessalonians, before we turn our attention to Second Thessalonians, is right at the end of this passage, he says, but uh, this is in uh, 5 verse 8, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, 
and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, if you've been reading through Paul's letters, you immediately recognize that these are two pieces of the armor of God. You ask yourself, well, what are, what are these doing here? This is supposed to be in Ephesians, uh, where we have the armor of God. And like I said at the beginning, this is probably one of Paul's first letters. This reference actually goes all the way back to the book of Isaiah, where you get a helmet of salvation and a blessed breastplate of righteousness. Um, I think this is a good uh, verse to note that Paul probably developed some of his ideas over time. Of course, we think that these words are inspired by the Holy Spirit and these are true, but the full set of armor actually takes him maybe a decade to uh, come up with. And he probably preached this a hundred times in between that he started with this proto suit of armor here in first Thessalonians, maybe like you said, um, early in his ministry. And then in Ephesians, which is later in his ministry, uh, he's developed that image with a lot more richness into the full armor of God, where you have the sword of the spirit and the feet with the readiness of the gospel. And, and you have the, the set is complete. And I just think that's an interesting thing. If you're reading through the letters to notice that this is a development in the way that Paul explains this concept. And it's a very natural development. Uh, I think one of the, the ways you see these connections, you said something about your devotional reading. We've talked about how it's important to read uh, long pieces of scripture. For example, my daily Bible reading is not Bible study. When I read, and right now I read in the mornings, I just read it to read it and soak it in. And one of the things I've noticed is things like this, is you'll see little ideas that connect in various places. I think devotional reading like that makes connections. Here's one that I saw, Cole, is back in chapter three. Uh, he's basic, uh, Paul's basically encouraging them saying that so that God may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God our Father and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That word blameless, which is amamas in Greek, just shows up all over the place in Paul's writings. And so I don't make a brilliant connection there or an evolutionary statement about it. I just think it's interesting as you read, you go blameless. Wow, I heard that in Colossians. I heard that in Ephesians. And it's. I think that devotional reading is really good for making connections. Mm -hmm. Oh, I think that's, that's one of the benefits of sitting down to read wide swaths of scripture, especially if you're reading letters in one sitting, you're going to get something totally different out of them than you do when you just study individual verses at a time. And both mm -hmm. are important. Well, let's turn our attention to Second Thessalonians. And this is another letter from Paul to the church at Thessalonica. And we don't actually know exactly when this letter is written, probably in pretty close proximity to the first one. Um, in fact, I came across a commentary when I was teaching through First and Second Thessalonians a couple of years ago that argue that maybe Second Thessalonians should be First Thessalonians and First Thessalonians should be Second Thessalonians. Um, and I, I, I don't read a ton into that, except that there aren't very many prominent temporal markers in Second Thessalonians that would lead you right. to know exactly when it was written. It seems to me like the best chronology is probably Timothy comes back, gives Paul a full report of what's going on. Then he sends Timothy or somebody else back with the letter. He hears about them. Sometime when they're coming back around, he writes this second letter and sends it to answer a few more of their questions. Keeping in mind that he wasn't able to be there very long or teach them very much. And so they've still got some pretty rudimentary questions. He hits on similar themes in both. So, for example, one of the problems in Thessalonica 
is that you had wealthy people who had come to Christ who were bankrolling the church. And some of the people thought, well, you know, the church benevolence fund is is doing so well that I actually don't need to do anything anymore. You had other people saying, well, Jesus is going to come back soon, so I shouldn't really be working or I'm going to empty out my 401k and just live it up until he does. And so you have a chronic problem of people not working in Thessalonica. And so in both letters, in chapter five of first Thessalonians and in chapter three, in Second Thessalonians, he's saying, hey, if you don't work, you don't eat. Admonish the idol. Get them back in the workforce. They need to be using their gifts. They need to be doing what God's called them to do. You see some similar themes like this in both of them. But I want to focus a little bit on the unique part of Second Thessalonians, and that is the middle of chapter 1 into chapter 2. Now something different has been happening in Thessalonica, and they've got a new question about the end times. Probably what's happened is they were growing. Things were going great. They were expecting, um, as Paul said, you got to be ready at all times for Christ to come back. And now they're being persecuted. And so they're wondering, has something changed? Have we missed it? Are we doing something wrong? And Paul is now going to address that concern with them in, um, like I said, the second half of chapter one, beginning in verse five all the way through the end of chapter two. So how does Paul meet this concern? Uh, Great question. And that's a good way to understand this letter is it does seem to me that it is a follow on to first Thessalonians. I will say this as an editorial comment. It is not necessarily a liberal position or a doubting the Bible position to say that we wouldn't, I wouldn't be dogmatic as to which was written first. It appears to me the second Thessalonians is second, because the first Thessalonians, second Thessalonians title was put on there by people. And so it's just people's best guess. But I think this is the, the right guess. I think it is second, because it appears to me that two things have happened that are a little different. One is that when he talked to them about, don't worry about people that have died in Christ, they'll be okay. And secondly, you know that the Lord will come as a thief in the night. And that caused two things to happen. And you've alluded to those. Some people then said, well, gosh, I guess I'll go ahead and spend my 401k because this is going to happen quickly. We don't know when. And it opened the door for some people to mislead them and say, you know, in fact, it was so secret, it's already happened and you guys missed out. And somebody's trying to bend this to their own Ends. And I take that from chapter two, where he says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, he didn't have time to talk about all this when he was there. So now he's elaborating it and our being gathered together with him. Don't be shaken or alarmed either by a spirit or somebody teaching you or a letter that seems to be from us. It's almost as though someone has forged a letter to for their own purposes that see Paul said it's already happened you guys missed out you should probably follow me now and so he says it appears that someone is trying to deceive you and he says in verse 3 let no one deceive you in any way by the way that's probably why at the end of second thessalonians the last verse is this i paul write this greeting with my own hand This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. This is how I write. 
Mm. It's almost as though it's authentic sign or ver sign. You know, it's like I'm authenticating this letter because apparently people are forging letters and saying they're from me. So then in chapter two, he elaborates a little more and he said, look, Christ will come like a thief in the night. You don't know when, but there will be signs. There will be an evolution of history. And one of them is this man of lawlessness who's going to come as a rebel. And Jesus will kill this man of lawlessness with the breath of his mouth. And so Satan is going to raise up some kind of rebellious figure before the coming of Christ. Now, obviously, there's plenty of opinions about who is this man of lawlessness. Probably the simplest would be the Antichrist in uh, the book of Revelation. That Satan's behind uh, a lawless presence that's going to rebel against Christ. But there are no shortage of other opinions. But once again, you can see what Paul is saying is, don't listen to anybody that tells you you've missed out. There will be signs before the end of the age, and you can rest assured in your security in Jesus. Any takes on on that passage? Well, I think you've covered the main uh, portions here. I think that's a pretty good framework for a lot of the different understandings. Um, I I tend to think, so the the commentators are a little bit divided on this, as you would expect. There's a lot of different ways to construe this. The language looks a lot like what you see in Daniel chapter 11. So you see uh, King Darius, there's a nation that rises up. And um, then later you see a person who is going to uh, bring on uh, an abomination. I think that's probably fulfilled before Christ in Antiochus Epiphanes. But this may be one of those situations where you have multiple fulfillments of prophecy so that this, this language here from Paul, he's thinking about what was said in Daniel. He's thinking about what was fulfilled, and he knows that there's a greater fulfillment coming of this same phenomenon. I tend to read this more in line with um, the beasts and um, the final battle in Revelation rather than what you see in 1 John where you see the Antichrist. I think the Antichrist is kind of a contemporary, and usually in 1 John it's Antichrists, plural. But sometimes we use that term, or sometimes people do use that term for um, the beasts and the false prophet in the book of Revelation as well. I think the thing that kind of clinches it for me is that Jesus will come and slay him with the sword of his mouth, with the word of his mouth, which is exactly what happens at the final battle in Revelation. I agree. Uh, I think verse eight, talking about slaying him with the breath of his mouth and verse nine, the lawless one uh, is acti- is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. And that's what mm-hmm. you see from the false prophet and the the beast is I, I agree with you. Those phrases, which Paul does not uh, probably has not been revealed to him, the book of Revelation, which I think will be written 40 years later in a revelation uh, to John, but it fleshes it out a little more. I think it's interesting to think that he's not drawing on Revelation. He's telling you what will happen in the book of Revelation 40, 45 years later is fleshing that out. So I, I, I agree with you, Cole. I think he's he's seeing, not clearly perhaps, but he's seeing what John is going to be uh, told about in the book of Revelation. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, th- I think the, the, what binds this together, the eschatology of Paul and the eschatology of John, is that they both are being led by the Spirit. 
they both have visions. So we, we know of John's vision because he writes it down. We know of Paul's visions because he refers to it. He says, I can't tell you mm-hmm. exactly what you know was said. Even he even kind of does this little rhetorical trick where he says, I know of someone who's been up to the third heaven and can't speak of it, but we know from the context that that's probably him. And that he's had these visions and things that he can't talk about, but that informs the way that he talks about what's going to happen in the end times. And so God is consistent, even though they're explaining it slightly differently in the way that this whole arc of the end times is going to fit together. Again, very difficult. There's a lot of very smart people with different thoughts on this. And so I wouldn't say that we're going to adjudicate this here, but this is where I think the textual um, evidence is going to lead us is to understand this consistently with the book of Revelation. I want to point out a feature of Second Thessalonians that's always appealed to me, and that is how many great doxologies and one-liners there are in this book, especially I'll just point out four of them. In 2.16, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. In three one, finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. I always, always love that phrase. Mm-hmm. In three five, he says, "May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ." And then later, it's in in chapter three, verse sixteen. Now may the Lord of peace Himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. These are great verses to memorize. So if you just took down on a note card, 216, 31, 35, 316, and you just memorize those to say to yourself throughout the day, these are really powerful reminders of what God does for us, what his promises are for us, what he's going to provide for us. And I, I found a lot of comfort in these verses from Second Thessalonians. I, I completely agree. 216 is one of my very favorite passages because they're beautiful they're reassuring, and it emphasizes what you said with both of these letters are very pastoral. Paul loves them, and he wants them to know how much God loves them, and he wants them to know how trustworthy God is. Uh, There are just some gems in these little books. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my takeaway from both of these would be basically the emphasis that he has in, in, in both of them that you see in chapter 3, verse 13 of 2 Thessalonians. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. The, the Christian life is a long journey. It is a marathon. It is one of continual growth, uh, but it is one too of growing to look more like Christ. Do not grow weary in doing good. That is very simple to say, but very tough to live out. And I think that's a good takeaway from this letter. I would agree. And and keep in mind, it's set, and I think this is more and more important for us in 21st century America, keep in mind that all of these things are being said against a backdrop of persecution, of trials, afflictions, difficulties. It was not popular to be a Christian in Thessalonica. And yet, you see these beautiful phrases set against that backdrop. And I think that we will come to treasure these passages more and more as our situation becomes more like theirs. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening. And we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.